What happens when we pray? How does prayer affect us, affect our world, and affect God? In this episode of Theodisc, Jack Johnson will be sharing his thoughts on the links between theology and prayer, different modes of prayer, and how we can hold together ideas of God's sovereignty with our own agency when we pray. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and I'm really glad that you're listening in. Please check out our other episodes and invite your friends to join in the theological conversation at Theodisc. Over the coming weeks, we'll be having discussions with Nick Crawley, Scott McKnight, and Carmen Imes, so be sure to subscribe. Jack Johnson teaches systematic theology at WTC. He holds a BA Honours in Christian Theology and Politics from Liverpool Hope University, an MLit in Systematic and Historical Theology from the University of St Andrews, and is a PhD candidate in Divinity, also at St Andrews. Jack's research interests include divine being, especially divine attributes and passability, time and eternity, trinity, Christology, and prayer. And it's on this last interest that we held our conversation. I hope you enjoy. Okay, on the podcast today, I have Jack Johnson with me. Jack, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about prayer and how our understanding of God's nature and his attributes and his character can actually give ground to our efforts in prayer and really inform the way that we approach God relationally when we pray. But before we get into that, um, I'm going to ask you some questions so that we can get to know you a little bit better. So the three questions that we want you to answer are, what is your favorite book, your favorite meal or food and your favorite place and these are really about constants in your life things that you return to so we're gonna we're gonna get to the work that you're doing (laughs) your cutting edge work that you're doing in the moment but we want to know a little bit about what are the things that really ground you so first of all what's a book that you that you return to probably harry potter it's going side by side now with a book called the name of the wind okay Uh, and they're they're sort of competing for that one but harry potter is the long-standing winner i think when you say Harry Potter, is that like just the canon of Potter or is there a particular one? I think overall the canon, but there is something about returning to the beginning. Okay, yeah, yeah. Particularly the fourth chapter or so, which is Diagon Alley. And it's that moment of entry into magical world. I find fantastic. Harry Potter is what got me into reading. I'm dyslexic. And so uh, without it, I don't know if I'd have done university or be here or any of those things so i'm quite grateful for to jk rowling actually for those things and your favorite meal or food probably fajitas i feel like it's enjoyment to effort to make ratio is just you can't beat that and there's something really good about eating really nice food that is was so easy yeah and i I, yeah I, i do love mexican some sour cream and all of that I have to say, among the academics that I've interviewed recently, the Latin American food is strong. The love for it is. It must be that that ease of making and. Yeah. It, it could also be a good pastry as well as a you know a bit like a pasty or. A, yeah. You know, well, you know something like that. I, proper northern food, you know. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. What about a place that you return to? The place I return to would probably be Liverpool. I think there's something about going home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that's also people and family and all of that as well, isn't it? As well as the 
just the city but yeah walking walking down bold street probably and all the different food places and coffee and you know that seeing the live buildings all of those things absolutely amazing all right thank you jack now we get a little insight into your personality um but let's dig into some of the work that you've been doing around our approach to prayer a quote that you had used was from evagrius ponticus did i say that right yeah at least i think so (laughs) he said if you're a theologian you truly pray if you truly pray you're a theologian so i just want to start by asking what is the connection between our understanding of God, our, our theology, and our prayer life. Yeah, I mean, I love that quote, actually. It's one of probably one of my favorite quotes now. And I love it because Evagrius is seeing theology as a revelatory experience, really, as a thing that is only done in relationship with God. And what I mean by that is, how do you know anything about God, who God is, about the way the church should be, about who we are as people, it's all, at least for Christians, it's based on how God reveals to us. Mm. And that is all dependent on God's move towards us. Mm-hmm. And so if prayer is an activity that is relational, that is a place that you actively enter into conversation with God, or perhaps eventually maybe subconsciously enter conversation <laughs> with God all the time, yeah. um, as a, maybe a name, that relationship is where God reveals himself to you and where he grows you as a person. And so if you want to do theology and if you want to think about God, then you have to enter that relationship because otherwise, how do you, how do you talk about God? And that's not to say you can't do, you know, academic work without being a Christian, but doing say church history or doing a study on a specific word in the scriptures somewhere, that's a very specific sort of work. But if you want to start talking about who God is or like what we might call constructive, theology um i think that has to be rooted in that relationship because it's all about the revelation at least that would probably be my argument at least (laughs) i love that because it's it's doing that thing that we often those two things that we often hold are often held separate from each other this idea of theology and relationship with god but i love what he's saying and what you're saying that actually those two things are necessarily you know together as we're pursuing god which is great and that's what can make theology a hard discipline is that unlike almost anything else studying it is about studying something that you probably hold dearly Mm -hmm. and so when you start to pull those things apart and start to question those things that is a painful process but that's also why it's good because you're starting to build and and see the the very foundations of your faith and that's why study theology is unlike i think probably anything else Uh, i studied a combined honors degree in theology and politics and that was it was stark really the way that like you can disassociate politics, really, right? Or, or at least I can. Um, <laughs> even if I, even if I care deeply about it as sure. well, you know, something that elicits big emotion, but it's not the same as my faith. It's not on the same level, and that's quite important, I think. So um, let's just stick there for a moment, because obviously you, this concept of prayer is really at the heart of the work that you've been writing, or it's really at least an example that you draw on in your work why has that been such an important thing for you that's a good question it i sort of fell into it accidentally so my my main thinking has been around does god suffer and have an emotional life Mm -hmm. and if he does then how do you think of god as unchanging and faithful in that which is a big debate in the last hundred years 
uh, particularly of the church. And in my master's, I decided to look at worship as the way that the church communicates what's, what it believes. And I didn't want to do worship again when I started doing PhD right. research. And I'd sort of come to the conclusion that worship was in some form or some sense, uh, almost an offshoot of prayer in many ways, mm-hmm. is that it's communicative, it teaches, it has all these things that prayer is doing too. And so that that became the outworking. And alongside that was this idea that prayer is something we all do as Christians. Um, Evelyn Underhill has this great quote uh, from the early 20th century that all Christians pray, some more or less, and very few of us reach the depths that we ought to. And it's this idea that prayer has a depth to it, that that we, most of us just don't get to the end of it. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to the end of that relationship with God ever, because there's just, God is bigger than we can comprehend. And so we just keep going with it. And being a charismatic as well, I think, would be the third part for me, which is prayer was just such a big part of my life and my church life and my experience of God. And so it seemed like a good thing to talk about right. at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you talk a bit about the different types of prayer that we have access to. And I think that sometimes our common understanding of prayer is really rooted in the sense of petition, sort of asking God for things. But um, there's quite a few other modes of prayer that we can access. So maybe we can talk through those and then dig into the implications of them. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, So you've already mentioned petition. So asking for things for yourself. And then that is often hand in hand with intercession asking for things on behalf of other people. And then you have um, lament. So crying out in sorrow and grief to God. We have thanksgiving, which is, I think, specifically thanking God for the things he has done. So the things that you can look at and see. And that might be obvious supernatural things of God, or it might be the the life that you lead, which is perhaps as much a result of your choices as well, and the way that God might have moved in that. Uh, And then we have adoration uh, and praise, which is saying things about God that are true of God, irrespective of what he has done. So even when you don't feel like there's anything to be thankful for, adoration remains a thing to do, I suppose. And there there might be some subtypes as well. So some people might list confession, but I would probably say confession is doing this thing where it's pulling in other types, the the sort of overarching types Mm -hmm. of prayer. So it, it's, you know, it's asking for forgiveness. It is lamenting of your own sin. It is praising God who will forgive. You know, it's it's pulling in the other bits. So it's almost like a it's a subtype that uses the other the other parts really to form its what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I think types of prayer are really interesting. And I think we often we don't think about what we're doing often. Mm. And we might do we I think you're right, let's say that we do often do petition. And that's often where we stay. But I think having an understanding of the types is really valuable. And it's really valuable because partly because they're supposed to be interrelated. Mm. So if you think about lament, for example, uh, it's something that actually charismatics tend to do pretty badly, tend to do pretty rarely. Yeah. But yeah. The, something like 42 of the 150 psalms are lament psalms. So songs and prayers of, of grief. Uh, and they follow this structure that involves various things. And by structure, I mean that very loosely because... It's not like it goes step one, then step two, then step three, but it's like most of the Psalms of Lament, they will cry out to God. They will ask him for something. They will thank him. They will uh, praise him and they will move through this process. And sometimes they'll do it and then they'll start again. And so the long Psalms might go through the process 
two or three or four times. And some of them times you will just go straight through. And there are some exceptions, but on the whole, they follow this sort of process. And that's important for us because often we might have all been through those places of sadness or, or you know, difficult times and we cry out and that's all we do. Right. And we go, God, I'm upset by this. And actually the model that a lot of we see in the Old Testament is that you're supposed to move from there into, but God, you are still great, mm. right? Or, uh, but God, thank you for this thing over here. And so the Psalms move you through a process. There's this idea in theology in, in church history called the orthodoxy, orthopathy, and orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that you have orthodoxy, which is true belief. You have orthopathy, which is true feeling. And you have orthopraxy, which is correct practice. And I think we have a tendency to say, well, if I have true thought, then I can do true practice. And then I'll have true feeling as though it's like a line. Mm-hmm. But actually, there things can they can work in other, other directions. <laughs> and so that might be true. But it's also true that if you feel a certain way, you will then start to think a certain way, right? right? Take the early Christological debates on uh, who is Christ. Then there is this thing of, well, we've worshipped Jesus since the first century. So who is he? Because we only worship Yahweh. Right, yeah. <laughs> and that that's a big part of it. And it's working out how, how do we say that? What do we say about Jesus if we are already worshipping him? Right. And that that's, you know, the feeling and the practice come almost before the, theology and it's not that the theology is not important theology mm-hmm. is really important mm-hmm. but it, they they link together you see that a lot in the new testament don't you of them figuring out what it is that they and god are doing together yeah yeah absolutely um yeah there's this a few of paul's letters begin with like in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit right and like there's this idea that is that proto-trinitarian right because he's already talking as though there's of the three and he won't he won't be thinking in the language of what will come in the fourth century about the really technical stuff but there's this sense he has mm-hmm. almost certainly of of god right um, yeah that's really interesting this idea that you have that sometimes our theology is based on uh, an experience or a, f- a feeling that we have that's the starting point at least and then we work that out it certainly seems to be true of some in some way of prayer the way that we pray and the expectation that we bring to prayer two of the models that we just spoke about their petition and lament when we are entering into those kinds of prayer it certainly feels like our prayers are um, asking god to act or respond to us in that moment But there are theological implications to that idea if we say that God is sovereign, that God is omniscient, and that all of history is in God's hands. And there are some streams of thought in the church that would say that God has predetermined all of history. So what are we getting into when we talk about this idea of um, that we're asking God to respond to us in the moment? What are some of the implications of that? We're essentially getting into a massive can of worms. Is what we're, <laughs> is what we're getting into. Don't worry, don't worry, Jack. We've got about fifteen minutes left, so we can sort this out. Oh, easy, <laughs> easy. <laughs> we, uh, there's this idea first, just to start off. There's this idea of um, that which is to be prayed is that which is to be believed, right? So, uh, what you pray, what you ask for, what you say, is an indication what is going on inside, what you feel and think. 
theologically, which is also true for worship. That's also an interesting conversation coming out of that, uh, which we won't get into, but just to throw it out there. And there's this idea that as I articulate things, the people around me hear what I articulate, and that explains what I feel and think. But also what I articulate, if it's not, unless you're, say, you're reading a, a pre-written prayer or something, if you're just praying as charismatics often do, just sort of from the heart or from the head or whatever that is, whatever that relationship is, you're just praying what you think. And so our prayers then would seem to tell us what we think um, about God. And so that's a good place to start, because when we start thinking about the way that theologians have talked about prayer, we can often go, oh, that's not what I think. And that's important because that's telling you about your theology. And that doesn't mean that your theology might, that might mean your theology has to change. That's worth saying that we all hold bits of theology that actually are, you know, a bit rubbish. And, uh, and you know, we might need to change our views, but also it might mean that there is a problem with something that you're reading. And I would say that there are three predominant streams of thought around prayer. Um, and these all have nuances. And in 15 minutes or 13 minutes, I don't have time <laughs> um, to give all the nuance of those types. But the three types are A, determinism. So this is what you see in Reformed circles or Lutheran circles. Calvin and Luther are both determinists. Interestingly, why they are determinists and how their determinism works is different. And the things that are is really good about their views of God and prayer are also different. In a determinist schema, there's this idea that God has ordained what will happen because God knows all that will happen and therefore it will happen. That's a bit reductionary, but you sort of get the idea. And like Calvin particularly would say that prayer is for you. It doesn't do anything to God because you can't change God's mind because God, God knows what is perfect. He knows what is good. He knows his own will. He knows what is good for you. And if he knows all those things, actually, why would you even want to change God's mind? Uh, and be how could you even think he could? And 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 that is connected to a whole lot of stuff on fallenness and brokenness and sin as well, which we can leave for a moment. Um, but yeah, Calvin's solution is to say it, it's not actually about God. It's about you being transformed. What that means, though, is that petition doesn't change anything, which seems to be the role of petition. <laughs> um uh, you know that might be a simplistic way of looking at it but this is a this is a quote from oliver crisp who's a reformed theologian he says god knows what we want and what we need and and his knowledge of these things is not affected one whit by our petition so you can petition all you like but god's knowledge and desires won't change and, and that a lot of people find difficult and a lot of people don't and that's fine um the next school of thought is what we might broadly call foreknowledge based ideas and it's not quite as catchy as a deterministic scheme, but there we are. And it's because there's all sorts of different theologians speaking into this. So if you come from a Methodist, like Wesleyan background, Wesley is thinking fire foreknowledge. Uh, Arminius, who's, and him and the Remonstrants are arguing against Calvin, they're, they're thinking in foreknowledge terms. And Thomas Aquinas, and a, a huge Roman Catholic school of thought, is thinking in these terms. Um, and I would probably say that Aquinas is the height of the sort of technical the difficult the the most developed way of considering it and he he says a num his thought is really difficult to read so uh if you're if anyone has read aquinas i commend you because i i find it a pain every time but i find it a pain because he's so brilliant <laughs> um and so he he and he's so brilliant because he throughout his work he's connecting all these ideas that don't seem immediately connected and once you start putting them together you see how these are all related to each other so take so to talk about prayer with Aquinas. He he. You also have to talk about causation, and we have to talk about fallenness. 
Uh, and we also have to talk about will. So um, causation in Aquinas, there's this idea of primary and secondary causation. So um, God as a primary cause might cause the universe to exist. And that then creates people. And then, you know, eventually we were born, right? But God didn't necessarily directly cause that to happen. That's secondarily caused by the will of people because he does want to maintain free will. So there's that there. He also has fallenness and he would say different things are affected to different degrees by the fall. So um, you're, the nature of human beings is not corrupted. And by that, I mean, what it is to be a human is not to be intrinsically sinful, because if it was, then Jesus would have been sinful because he's 100% man. However, w- what is changed is a your inclination. And so your inclination towards sin or not sin is affected. So um, you're more inclined to sin, but you're not not inclined to do good. So you can will to, towards the good. And virtue and grace is completely gone from you. So you are broken. So he's not saying we're not sinful. As we might get scared of some of that stuff of saying we're intrinsically, but he's not he's not saying that. Um he's he's dividing up so we can say things about Jesus, so we can say things about us, so that we can still be humans. We so have this idea that to be human is not to be broken. It's properly speaking, even if we ourselves are broken. And so there's that. And you put those things together and you have this idea that, well, humans can will towards good. We can will to pray things. We can have those desires. And those aren't completely gone because we still have some free will. Because otherwise we'd only ever will towards evil until God changes us, which is where the determinists go. The final part is God's being. And Aquinas would say, um, much like Luther and Calvin, actually, yeah, God is sovereign. He is all-knowing. He is all-loving. All all of those things that we, we think of. And he's unchanging. And so, uh, but what he knows is what you will do. And you have the choice to do these things. And God knows what you're going to do. And he's always known those things. And so you are choosing to pray. And then he, God then knew that and he ordained that. And that looks quite nice, I think. There's, there's a big appeal in that. The The problem that comes up is to say, well, if he knows that I will pray tomorrow, can I actually not pray tomorrow? And if I can't not pray Am I really anywhere on from the determinists? Am I any different? Eleanor Stump, in her, in one of her works on petitionary prayer, she's a she's a Thomistic scholar, big fan of Aquinas, and she was she has this whole view of eternity that I, for the record, I'm, I think she's right, but that's an aside. Um, but she would say of Aquinas that on petitionary prayer, unless you think that Aquinas thinks what she thinks about time, then Aquinas doesn't make sense, and that's sort of funny. Let's be honest, it's sort of funny. But she's got a point. She's like, how, how do you get around the determinism of this? And you, you don't seem to be able to on a first glance reading. The final predominant school is open theism, uh, which is the sort of new kid on the block. It comes out in the late 20th century. And they would say, well, actually, for proper petitionary prayer, you need this idea of two-way contingency. So you need you to be able to do something and God to actually be able to respond. And they would bring out all sorts of scriptures to talk about that. I mean, actually, everybody would bring out all sorts of scriptures. But this one, I think, is really obviously illustrated by um, two kings, where Elisha was, uh, he's, he's told to, uh, he tells him to bang the arrows on the ground. And he bangs them three times. And Elisha says, well, because you have only banged the arrows on the ground three times, God will bless you that, that amount over and destroy your enemies that amount over. But if you had kept banging the arrows, then God would have blessed you more and more and more. And, and an open theist view would say, well, actually what that is, is God is moving towards humans and humans move towards God. And actually what we do really matters. 
one of the questions we might have for that is, well, what does that mean about God's knowledge? I don't know if you've ever come across the uh, the sort of the, those philosophical arguments. You know, yeah. can God create a square circle? Right. Can God create a rock he can't lift? Yeah. Um, for any listeners who have ever struggled with those questions, you have you have permission to answer those questions with no, because those those are stupid questions, and I mean that in the politest possible way to people who ask you those questions. They are stupid questions, and they're stupid questions because they're actually nonsensical. Right. right? So a square circle is not a thing. And I mean, that as I say, say, it is a non-thing. It's a direct contradiction in its terms. And so, no, God can't create a contradiction. There's loads of philosophy around that, about why that's actually just a ridiculous question. And an open theist would take that logic and say, that's what the future is, right? The future is something by its nature dependent on the present. And so the future does not exist. It is not a thing that can be known. So they would say, God knows everything. But God does not know the future because the future is not a thing also sounds appealing. But if you have any desire to see prophecy, what is prophecy anymore? <laughs> it becomes quite almost like lucky guesswork. Um, yeah, to illustrate this, Swin- Swinburne in The Christian God says, uh, if at any time God does have perfect freedom, then always prior to that, God would have been ignorant of how he will act. Uh, and Aquinas, Luther, Calvin would all absolutely disagree with that because they would say, no, God knows himself perfectly he he doesn't think about acting he knows the future he knows all those things and so one of the ways things i've been thinking about and thinking through all of this is what do we do because i find myself drawn to bits of all three of these sort of ideas but i don't find any of them wholly convincing i like that calvin thinks we should emphasize obedience to god that we should emphasize adoration and thanksgiving i like that luther thinks the whole thing is all just about relationship and it doesn't really matter if things change. It's about relationship. I like that Aquinas has this deep desire to maintain will, but also say that God, yeah, God knows though. He is with you and he knows what is coming. I have the desire of the open theist to say, yeah, but you matter and you have a desire to, to do that, uh, to work with God and God wants that. Um, but I find problems in all of it. So what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Ken. How did you figure it out? So, I don't know if I've entirely figured it out. No, but your approach. But I, I have. I think I have convinced me, even if I'm not convincing anybody else. And what I think, and you know, there's probably other people out there who have got great ideas. And if you do, feel free to email me. I'd love mm-hmm. to hear. But what I think is going on is about how God experiences time and eternity. I mean, all through this discussion, we've seen how talking about prayer actually also means talking about who God is and who we are and about brokenness. And it's got. It's just connects to the kind of. It's just. It is just a kind of worms. And, and the, the can I'm about to open is time and eternity. And where is God? How does God experience creation? And we sometimes have this thing, I think, where we we, we are in time and we are on the, the sort of the timeline, for want of a better phrase. And we say, well, I'm here and God is with me and therefore God knows what's ahead of me. As though like what's ahead of you isn't also in existence in some sense. And what I mean by that is, well, if God is outside of time and we see that actually in bits of scripture when solomon builds the temple he talks about how the whole universe can't contain god so how does the temple contain god how can god be in the temple if he's actually already everywhere and beyond everywhere how is it that the lamb is slain before the foundation of the world in revelation and what i think is going on is that god is his mode of being where he exists is also beyond time and all of time is present to god so think of time as like a snow globe there might be a road in your snow globe which is might be your timeline but but God is like holding that. It is all present to him and it's all happening as though it's happening. 
like in the in the in a present in a now and those things aren't happening after each other because there is no after if there is no time and that's why i think eternity is for god and only for god no one angels us we don't experience it like that at all and that's important because we're all created so we exist on a timeline and so if all of those things are present to god then in his eternity he is experiencing your praying and the answer to the prayer at the same present even if you experience them as sequential and it's okay for you to have an experience of time that god doesn't because even if actually even if he uh, is in time he already has a different experience to you because he's with everybody at the very least he's experiencing way more than you could ever experience and so doesn't feel like a big jump to me to actually put god outside of time and this is an idea that goes back quite a long way eleanor stump who i quoted earlier this is part of her view of time and eternity and you know she's drawing off boethius who's a fifth century sixth century christian philosopher so like it's these things have been around and that that's that's my solution just to say actually where god is makes a difference so that that then preserves got the idea of god being omniscient Mm -hmm knowing everything but also preserves this idea that we have will in the middle of it and are able to exercise that in the way that we we pray yeah how how does that work itself out then practically for us as we're as we're praying so that's where we go back to the the beginning of this whole podcast i suppose and go well actually we have these types of prayer that build our relationship with god and i can still choose to petition god for things and and he may or may not, well, he will respond and he may respond with a yes or no or not yet. And and we keep doing that. We keep petitioning. We keep praising. We keep thanking God. And we see and we uh, we think about our language. What does our language say about God? All of those things of connected ideas, we just keep praying. And that's what's actually cool about prayer and uh, reading people who write about prayer is that they all pray. You know, I can tell you these ideas um but you know calvin was still praying right and aquinas was still praying and the open theists are still praying we might all disagree on what's the what prayer actually is doing but they're they're in it they're in like they're doing the stuff as we used to say in the church i was part of and that's really cool just do it would be my (laughs) is i suppose the takeaway pray and and if you're like me and you're dissatisfied you want to know why that's great and there's loads of stuff to read. And if you don't care that much about why, then that's great too. Just yeah. go pray. I do though like this, um, the idea that we don't have to hedge our bets. And I think sometimes when we have this sense of everything is predetermined, our, our prayers can sometimes become kind of reserved in the things that we ask because we are afraid that we're going to step on what God has already decided. Mm-hmm. And yet, it all, I also like that that we can have an assurance that God does know and that God is at work and that God does have a plan. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, Calvin and Luther in the determinists, they would still say you should ask for things. Sure. But they, the only way you're going to get what you've asked for is if God determined that before time, you know, and and that's okay. That, you know, in some sense, you're always just going to pray then, aren't you? And that's okay too. Well, there's a sense in that as well, which is about aligning our, our, our will with God's will which you know jesus invited us into that as well so yeah um and and that is definitely like going on i i, I heard 
I think you probably have too. I've heard preachers all the time be like, thank goodness for all the times God didn't answer my prayer with yes. Right. You know, and absolutely. We we have a, a benefit of, of a hindsight often going, I'm so glad that that did not happen. Yeah. And that's true perhaps of also of our characters and who we are and who we are in relationship is that God uses our, our lives and our experiences and our prayers and our time with him to mold us, to change us, to, to meet with us. Mm. And that's so cool even if we don't always get what we want and even if it hurts. Well, Jack, thank you for provoking us to think about this. And um, I really appreciate this connection between the prayers that we pray and bringing us into a deeper connection to an understanding of God. And that those two things are inherently linked and it's and it's important that one affects the other. Maybe as we finish up here, would you mind to pray for us? <laughs> I would love to. Um, <laughs> yeah, dear Lord, I uh, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to think about you, to learn about you. Um, and as we, as we go forward for today, as we pray, uh, may you meet with us. May we be experiencing more of you. Um, and may you bless um, our thoughts and our and our practices. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us, Jack. My pleasure, Kenny. Well, thank you, Jack, for dissecting the intricacies of prayer in a systematic way for us. There is certainly much more to it than we realise and hopefully this will inspire us all to dig deeper into this important practice as we seek to grow closer to God. In our next Theodisc episode, Kenny will be joined by Nick Crawley, also known as the husband of our principal, Lucy Pepiat. Nick has been leading churches for four decades in Twickenham, Harare, Zimbabwe, Sheffield, and currently in Bristol. He is deeply committed to the ministries of the Word and the Spirit and runs a discipling ministry based on the Bible for Life website. Theodisc is part of WTC, a theological college that seeks to partner with the Church through equipping and sending the whole people of God. Our innovative hub model allows you to study on any of our part-time programmes without leaving your work or ministry. Come and find out more at wtctheology.org.uk. Thank you for listening to episode 19 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 20 with the Reverend Nick Crawley as we look at discipleship and the Bible. Bye!